Good evening. Welcome to the Sphere webinar this evening. It's a pleasure to have all of you here with us tonight. I, I'm thrilled for you to join us for this special release event for the latest edition of Freedom in the 50 States. It's a fantastic new report, and I'm excited to have the opportunity to bring the authors together tonight to join us in conversation about that report exclusively for you, uh, the educators here of the Sphere Education Initiative. Uh, before we begin, a couple of quick announcements. Uh, as as a reminder, as always, we'll be sending out professional development certificates for this session. Uh, as part of that, please, by all means, do uh, make sure that your name in the chat matches your, your registration name, whatever that might happen to be, so we can align those. And also, by all means, please engage in the chat. We'd love to take your questions. We're going to have a little bit of time here at the beginning where we're going to go through some conversation with Will and Jason, and then we'll spend the, the bulk of our conversation bringing in your questions from the evening. Well, let me go ahead and go right into introducing our speakers for this evening. I'm thrilled to be joined uh, by William Ruger. Uh, Will is the Vice President of Research and Policy at the Charles Koch Institute and Vice President for Foreign Policy at Stand Together. He was previously an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at Texas State University. Ruger earned his PhD in politics from Brandeis University and an AB from the College of William and Mary. His scholarship has appeared in a number of academic journals, including International Studies Quarterly, Civil Wars, and Armed Forces and Society. He's the author of the biography Milton Friedman and a co-author of two books on the state politics, including this, Freedom in the 50th States. Ruger has written op-eds for a number of outlets, such as the New York Times, Essay Today in Foreign Affairs, and is interviewed frequently for television and radio, appearing on MSNBC, CNN, and Fox News. Ruger is a veteran of the war in Afghanistan and an officer in the U.S. Navy, the reserve component. Ruger was nominated by President Trump to serve as a U.S. ambassador to the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan and was appointed by the president to the Fulbright Foreign Scholarship Board in 2020. He lives with his wife and two sons in Virginia. Joining Jason tonight and his co-author in the book is Jason Sorens, who's the director of the Center for Ethics and Society at St. Anselm College and received his PhD in political science from Yale University in 2003. He has researched and written more than 20 peer-reviewed articles in a book, Secessionism, published by McGill Queens University Press. His research is focused on independence movements around the world, the theory and practice of fiscal federalism, and subnational economic policymaking. He has founded two nonprofits, the Free State Project, and Ethics and Economics Education. He lives with his wife and daughters in New Hampshire. Please join me in welcoming both of our panelists and authors tonight. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure to have you here. And I think there's so many fantastic things for us to talk about in the new report, in the book, to dig into all the different pieces. Uh, Something that some of our educators may not be familiar with, this is the latest iteration in a series of uh, Freedom in the 50 States reports. I think to begin, I'd love to go back and talk a little bit about, uh, well, why do a, a report on Freedom in the 50 States in the first place? And, and to what extent is this report similar or different to some other reports of a similar character that the, the teachers may be familiar with? Will, do you want to start us off with that one? Yeah, thanks, Alan, and, and thanks everyone for joining us. Uh, like I said in the chat, this is a scarce resource of your time, and we appreciate you spending it with us. Um, so I, I think the first thing we would say is we're political scientists, right? Jason and I are, you know, have studied political science. We're interested fundamentally in some of these questions about, you know, how to measure freedom. Uh, you know, it's an important normative concept. Uh, we care about freedom, uh, the two of us, uh, just like I think all Americans uh, to one extent or another. Uh, and so we wanted to see like, you know, could we measure this? Could we look at the state of freedom across the 50 states and to see which states were more or less free, particularly because one of the great things about our federal system is that people uh, can vote with their feet and different policy regimes that uh, match their preferences, you can, you can leave and go to. And, and that's always been something that's part of the American experiment. Um, now, the thing that's different about this report relative to other freedom indices is that this is the first, and I still think only report, that doesn't just look at economics, but also looks at personal freedom. And that's because we view freedom as a whole. You can't simply be a Singapore uh, and be free saying, well, we're economically free. We have all these restrictions on personal freedom, nor could you be uh, a free state if you have some semblance of political or personal freedoms, but you don't have a free market. Um, and so we think it's important to look across all of the different types of freedom that add up to what it means to be a free person in a free society. And that's what we wanted to do is to kind of measure what that looks like. And again, no state is perfect. 
there's no state that fully respects the individual liberty uh, that we cherish, and that's unfortunate. But there are states that are more, uh, I think, consistent with the free, you know, kind of the vision of the Declaration of Independence and its ideal than others. And we'll talk more about how we measure that and which states are doing better or worse on those standards. Absolutely. Jason, what would you add to that? Yeah, um, I mean, of course, I agree with Will, but I would also say that um, it, this study is an invitation to think about what freedom means and um, what its role is really in our political philosophy. Um, so we are looking solely at the extent to which government respects um, the negative freedoms of citizens. By negative freedoms, I mean uh, freedom from interference, essentially your ability to um, enjoy those rights to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness uh, from the Declaration of Independence, right? Without, um, without undue um, or, or significant um, infringements. And so um, that would be distinct from a concept of positive freedom, for instance, that would talk about um, your freedom to um, have certain things provided to you. Right, and so we might think of, of positive freedom as valuable, having more options and choices. Um, for us, our, our political philosophy is that um, positive freedom is, is valuable, but negative freedom is um, more fundamental. And so we shouldn't take away negative freedom to, to have positive freedom. Uh, but others might disagree. Um, others might say, well, I value both positive and negative freedom, and sometimes it's okay to take away someone's negative freedom, take away their property, for instance, to provide more choices to somebody else. Um, but even so, I think everyone would agree that negative freedom is valuable, and so this report helps you understand where you can get more of that, where, which states, uh, which state governments are respecting negative freedom more, and um, you know, that is part, at least part of what we think of as a good society. Yeah, and I'd, I'd just add one more thing is that this is in the long line of political science research that tries to measure a normative concept empirically and scientifically, right? So you can love or hate freedom. Uh, and what we're trying to do is to, is to measure it in a uh, objective fashion. It's, you know, and so this follows in the line of people who study democratization. So what is a democracy and how many are there? Uh, what does it look like around the world uh, to study equality, uh, to study uh, you know, a variety of different other things that matter to human beings? And this is just in that vein. And, and so we're proud to be in that as scientists, but also people who think that freedom has intrinsic value here. But it also is something where we think that there are a lot of different uh, people who could utilize this, whether it's individuals, scientists, businesses, uh, journalists who, who want to you know, kind of look at the, the kind of different types of state regime, policy regimes, and policy champions who, who want to look at what their, their states are doing because states are, as, as Justice Brandeis talked about, they're laboratories of democracy uh, or yardsticks, as other people have talked about. So I think this is great. I want to get into some of the nitty gritty of the of the report itself. But before we do, I think it's important to uh, really elucidate on some of what you just said. Uh, you talked about, uh, well, at the very beginning that you measure a wide variety of different kinds of freedom. And so I think what I'd love to hear a little bit more is, well, what are you guys actually measuring? Right. So what are some of the major categories of which you're considering when you're taking a look at the different states? Uh, and then with that, what do you choose to include and what do you not include, right? So what, what are some of the kinds of things that don't make the cut for a report like this? It's, it's comprehensive for those of you who've had a chance to take a look at it, but even still, of course, plenty of things that you can't take a look at or, or don't quite fit in. So what, what falls in and uh, why and why not? Yeah, we have three major categories. The first is fiscal policy, which is taxes, government spending, debt, things like that. Uh, we have regulatory policy, which consists of economic regulations. So these are restrictions on businesses, uh, being able to open a business or practice a trade or profession, um, restrictions on property owners. Um, those, those are in regulatory policy. And then we have personal freedoms and those are restrictions on your personal life, your lifestyles, um, uh, sort of the choices you make um, about how you live your life, uh, your, your bodily integrity, things like that. Um, and so we include over 
uh, 150 different state policies. Uh, and we go all the way back to the year 2000. And then we, we weight these to create the index according to uh, research that's already been done on the impact of each of these policies. So we can actually um, get an estimate. In some cases, it's a rougher estimate than others, but we try to get a, 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 the best estimate we can of the actual impact on people's lives of these policies. And that's the way we aggregate all of that uh, to create an index of freedom. Now, there are certain policies that we don't include in the sort of main index, um, but then we offer alternative indices of freedom, depending on your viewpoint about what counts as a freedom. Um, so maybe the most significant of these is abortion. Um, so uh, on one view, uh, the, um, the rights here uh, are in the potential mother. Uh, it's, her, it's her body. She can do uh, with the fetus whatever she wants. Um, and uh, it would be a restriction on freedom to take away that freedom. Um, and then on another view, um, the fetus is a person with rights and, uh, and freedom involves protecting that life. And um, so those restrictions uh, are necessary actually to, uh, to protect freedom. And so we offer both a, a pro-life version of the freedom index uh, that codes as positive for freedom restrictions on abortion we have a moderate pro-choice version, um, which says that um, restrictions up until viability are bad, but then, uh, or, uh, and then after viability, it's okay to, uh, to restrict or ban abortion. And then we have a, a strong pro-choice version of the index that says that um, all restrictions on abortion up to the moment of birth are, are bad for freedom. Uh, so you can check those out. And really, depending on what your view of abortion is, that um, each one of those three versions of the index should be sort of your personal freedom index. Uh, we also consider our uh, right to work laws, um, which are uh, laws that allow um, private employees not to pay agency fees to a union. And they restrict employers from making that a, re a requirement for employment. So technically these right to work laws are actually a restriction on freedom because they don't allow employers and employees to agree that employees will be required to pay these agency fees. Um, but in, in context, um, there's a, a, a good argument that, um, that right to work laws are really a kind of form of protection against uh, the federal government requiring that employees and employers collectively bargain. Uh, there's something called the National Labor Rights Act, Labor Relations Act that requires employers and employees to collectively bargain rather than individually once a certain number of employees vote for that. Um, and so we think that is a, the bigger restriction on freedom. And so in some ways you can see right to work laws as kind of taking back some of that freedom, but we acknowledge that other people might disagree. And so we've also provided versions of the index that exclude um, those right to work laws. Well, something that I think would be interesting to hear from you uh, is to talk a little bit about where did the data come from? So is this something that you guys are collecting? Or are you pulling from other people? Uh, share a little bit with the teachers about where, uh, where you're getting your information and, and how it is that you're working through it. Sure. So uh, this will seem to many like a, a pretty um, you know, a difficult uh, challenge, but we've been doing this together for almost 15 years. So it's taken a long time to collect all this data, but we have data going all the way back to the year 2000 for just about every policy variable. And then for some policy variables, all the way back to what, uh, 1937, I think, in some cases. Um, but we collected this data uh, in a variety of ways. So sometimes we're coding directly from statutes, right, directly from the laws. And uh, as you might guess, that's the most demanding thing for us to have to do, particularly because we're trying to assign, uh, you know, uh, numbers uh, to uh, to words, right? <laughs> and that could be a real challenge, particularly when it's not a yes or no thing, right? Like, do you allow raw milk uh, sales or not? That's pretty easy. Uh, but when you try to decide some of the other variables, it's much more challenging. Uh, but sometimes we're actually going to intermediate sources. So, for example, the American Lung Association. Uh, has some great charts that talk about different types of restrictions on uh, tobacco freedoms. 
And so we can use those to help us uh, assign numbers, even though in many cases they're like check marks uh, for uh, variables that are either going to be a zero or a one, uh, or even variables that are um, more de you know complicated. We can assign numbers to those pretty easily just using uh, what an intermediate source like the American Lung Association has used. So it's quite a uh, there's a whole range of them. And again, we're looking at you know um, hundreds of variables here, right? Um, so. When we talk about uh, freedom, uh, there are those three big categories, right? Fiscal, regulatory, and personal. But within them, there's lots of different variables. So even if you think that we're including one or weighting one more than another, generally speaking, because we have so many variables, it's not like a change in the variable on any one thing will substantially affect it. And so we think we're, we're not just we think, we're very confident that we've accurately measured relative freedom across the states. That New York, for example, is significantly less free than a state like New Hampshire or Florida. Um, again, because we're looking at a whole range of variables. And even if you said like, well, I don't think that, um, uh, you know, an issue like um, uh, restricting uh, smoking in a restaurant is an important part of freedom, we should have taken that out of the index that wouldn't have substantively changed the relative freedom you see between New York and 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 in New Hampshire, our number one and our number fifty state. Um, now, in in one of the things that I think is 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 highly valuable is is having a look at how we've actually weighted these. Uh, and Jason, I think, uh, is probably best suited to talk about some of that because. Uh, you know, we, we've done this in a complicated fashion uh, that uh, I think is very satisfactory. Uh, but what we've tried to do essentially is to look at uh, the different states and not try to be subjective about it, right? Not just say like, well, we care about, uh, and this actually happened in the first edition uh, where we, we eyeballed it more than anything. Like, well, we don't think gambling is that important to me and Jason. We know it's important to others. So we kind of eyeballed it. Uh, but actually, when we started to do it more objectively, uh, it turns out that something like gambling is actually more valuable than something like the, the more valuable than we had originally assigned it. So, uh, Jason, I don't want to step on your lines here because uh, we had talked beforehand about how we were going to do this. But do you want to talk a little bit, Jason, about how we weighted these things? Yeah, well, I mentioned earlier, we, we do look at the research um, to, to find um, the exact impact of each of these uh, policies on people's lives. And that's um, that's how we weighted them. Um, and so that does constrain us, right? So something like gambling, we initially assumed uh, would not uh, be an extremely important freedom to people. But then we, when we looked at um, how much people spend on it, uh, it turns out that it is, that it is valuable to people. People do uh, go to Nevada to, uh, to have that, that freedom in spades. So, um, so that was interesting. And again, we're trying to get away from this being the Ruger and Soren's view of freedom. We're trying to take a definition of freedom, right? People should be allowed to dispose of their life, liberty, and property as they see fit, consistent with the equal rights of others. This is called the law of equal freedom. And then we just let the chips fly where they will. Um, and again, I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of gambling. I don't do it. It's not a part of my life. Uh, and, but we have to look at the data and then call balls and strikes because we're trying to be good social scientists which is kind of where why where we started from when we started this index 15 years ago. So I'd love to get to the fun part, which is let's talk about what you learned. What's in the report? So taking uh, taking a look at the really uh, big picture for those educators here tonight who haven't had a chance to to dig into the content yet. Uh, what did you guys learn? So uh, big picture, who's doing well, who's doing poorly, and uh, what are some of the interesting things that you learned in compiling this year's report? Yeah, well, our, our number one state uh, this time is, is New Hampshire, but it's very, uh, it's very close to Florida. Florida's number two, Nevada's number three. Um, we also have um, uh, South Dakota is, is in the top five. Um, so we have a sort of mix of states and, and they don't really have a whole lot in common. Um, so there's, there's no state, I think Will mentioned, there's no state that really blows away everyone else across the board that's just really, um, really free in every respect. Uh, but uh, so, so these, these states near the top each have different strengths. Um, and so New Hampshire, I think, gets a number one because it is fairly strong across the board. There are a few problem areas, um, but it's not way ahead in any dimension. It's just 
near the top and in, in, in the majority of them. Um, Florida does really, really well on economic freedom. So does South Dakota. Nevada is our number one state for personal freedom. Big surprise there. Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, so these states end up in the top five for different reasons. New York uh, ends up number 50, and it does so um, because it is relatively bad on, on every dimension. It's not uh, worst on everything either, though. Uh, there are some things that, that New York does well on, um, but it just tends to be much lower than average um, in, in most of the important policy areas, and that's how it ends up number 50. Uh, we also get states like um, New Jersey, California, Oregon, um, down near the bottom. And uh, these states are, are different in, in, in different ways, um, but there are some things that they have in common. They all do uh, quite poorly on economic freedom, particularly. Um, and we find that states, you know, states are more bunched together on personal freedom than economic freedom. And the reason for this is that if you think about red states and blue states, right? Um, well, red states, um, do, we do find are um, somewhat higher on economic freedom than blue states. But on personal freedom, it's, it's really a mix. Um, so, so red states have more of certain personal freedoms and blue states have more of other types of personal freedoms. Um, I mean, think about guns and marijuana, for example, as, as examples of, of personal freedoms that uh, you might find uh, more of the, the gun freedoms in a red state, you might find more of the marijuana freedoms in a, in a blue state. Um, and so states end up being a, a little bit more bunched together and you only see a few states that really stick out as, as really great um, or really, uh, really poor on, on personal freedom. Well, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. As you were you were compiling the report this year, what are some of the trends that surprised you? What were some of the things that were interesting uh, or say different from previous iterations of the report? Yeah, I think West Virginia is an interesting case, right? Um, you know, West Virginia uh, is starting to look more like a typical red state than it has in the past. And I think that shows you that, um, you know, that one policy ideology matters, uh, but, but two, some of the kind of identity that states have impacts kind of where they go. And now West Virginia is a place, for example, and, and this isn't, isn't part of the index because it was after our data cutoff, uh, but they're becoming a leader in K through 12 education reform. And that should improve their scores in the, in the next index, uh, which should be out in 2023. So hopefully you'll be back here with us then. <laughs> um, but I think that what Jason talked about, which is that, you know, personal freedom has seen more clumping over time, right? Less divergence than on fiscal and regulatory policy. And it's also more clear there, right? Like, so a state like New York and, and, and California, Hawaii, these are states that are, it's much more clear how different they are than states like Florida, South Dakota, and others that score well on, on fiscal policy. Um, and, and I think, the, again, like that, that's, I think, advantageous for people to know that, right? So if those are some issues that matter a lot to your business or to you personally, uh, you know, then you can vote with your feet. And Americans do that. And, and that's one of the other things we can talk about later is the relationship between freedom as we measure it and the migration patterns of Americans over time. Uh, but, but I think that this is why these studies are useful, right? If you're looking for a state and again, people move for lots of reasons. Um, you know, it's not just freedom. It's, it's a whole bundle of things that they matter, that they care about. Um, but if you're looking, you know, as you, as you approach retirement to try to reduce, uh, you know, the kind of tax bite uh, that you face, uh, you know, then, then you're looking at certain states that might be the states that would be more valuable to you. Um, and, and this is a real challenge for states, like states like Illinois, uh, New York, and others, especially as they face some of the uh, kind of crunch that they will in the future related to things like their pension liabilities, you know, that's, that's something that, that's going to really impact them. And, and again, one of the virtues of our federal system is that, uh, is that states can try to experiment with giving citizens what they want. So if, you're, if you want um, more spending on, say, uh, uh, parks and more spending on hospitals and more spending on social welfare programs, uh, you can find those and you can use our data to approximate that.
Yeah, the, the other thing uh, that's that really stuck out to me is how uh, freedom has changed over time and, and the role the federal government has played in that. So we find that on average, states became less free over the first decade of the 20th, uh, 21st century. Um, and then over the last decade, um, they've gotten substantially more free on average. And in fact, that increase in freedom over the last 10 years has been significantly bigger than the decrease over the previous 10 years. Um, but we also see a role of the, of the federal government here. And sometimes the federal government intervenes to um, promote freedom at the state level and sometimes to reduce it. Uh, and we've been doing this study for 12 years. We now have data for 20 years. So it's, we can see some interesting patterns there. We find that when the federal courts get involved, um, they tend to increase freedom, even against the, the will of the states, right? So, um, so one example would be the Obergefell decision that legalized same-sex marriage uh, nationwide, and that overturned a lot of um, state laws, some of which even went so far as to ban um, gay couples from having any kind of contracts that would replicate any of the benefits of marriage. So pretty radical restrictions on, on freedom um, that were wiped away at one stroke. And so a lot of states that... Um, had done fairly poorly on personal freedom, saw a big jump in 2015 as a result of that change. On the other hand, when, uh, when Congress gets involved, it tends to reduce freedom. So when, when Congress passes legislation in areas um, that previously states handled, um, usually Congress chooses a policy that is less pro-freedom than what states wanted to do. And the big example here is health insurance regulation. Um, so most states wanted uh, less health insurance regulation than what Congress legislated um, in uh, 2010. But, um, but there are other examples as well, like GMO labeling laws that Congress adopted, um, a regime that preempted some, some mandatory labeling that was more extensive. Um, but most states have not created any mandatory labeling laws. So, um, so Congress for most states was, was somewhat uh, reducing freedom there. Yeah. Um, so big trend there that courts tend to be pro-freedom, Congress not so much. So one thing I'd add in terms of surprises, it doesn't surprise me because I lived in Texas and I love Texas in many ways, but someone in the chat mentioned Texas. I mean, Texas is a state that might surprise some that it's actually not as free as is oftentimes claimed by the rhetoric of its politicians. Um, and it's citizens, right? I, again, I live there all the time and people would always talk about, you know, Texas and freedom and freedom loving, but Texas doesn't do that great in our study. It comes in at 21st. And that's largely driven by the fact that Texas has two, two big problems. One, its personal freedom is, is really quite poor relative to other states. A big part of that has to do with their uh, criminal justice and policing, uh, but it's a lot of other things as well. Uh, and even on gun rights, they really didn't improve until recently relative to states like even like Vermont. And I used to joke with my buddies in Texas about how uh, at one point Vermont had a better gun regime when it came to the, the view that people have an individual right to bear arms um, than, uh, than Texas did. Now that's changed, but that used to be the case. But, but Texas doesn't do very well on personal freedom. Um, uh, it also doesn't do great on regulatory policy. Uh, you know, it's it's it does its best on fiscal policy, uh, especially at the state level. At, at at the local level, you know, there's some challenges in 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 Texas, um, but at the at the state level, it does well on things like taxation and otherwise. Um, but that might surprise a lot of people that might think, well, why isn't Texas in the top five or top ten? Um, I I did think it would be valuable to kind of talk about a couple of things to go back, Alan, uh, because of things people have said in the chat. Yeah, please do. I think Jason really nailed it when he said there's a difference between negative freedom and positive freedom. Um, you know, so if, if you're thinking about like subpopulations, for example, um, you know, issues of um, uh, of government spending for people who are unfortunately differently abled. Right. Um, uh, uh, that doesn't relate to negative freedom because negative freedom is essentially, again, like I said, it's your ability to live your to, to, to kind of dispose of your life, liberty and property as you see fit, uh, consistent with equal rights of others. So not harming other people's ability to do that. Uh, so freedom, if you if you tax people for other people's benefit and a benefit that isn't connected 
to simply securing those basic negative rights, then you are infringing on their negative freedom. Now, you might decide that that's valid or a condition of justice as you see it, but that's not traditionally in the definition of freedom, right? In the same way as, for example, uh, you think about housing policy. If I say, you know, look, I don't think Jason should be allowed to build a, a condominium on his property in Manchester, New Hampshire, um, you might say that uh, I'm, uh, you know, uh, that's something that's good for me, uh, but that is infringing on his ability to dispose of his property as he sees fit, uh, even in a case where he's not harming others, right? And so it, these are just different things. And now, again, you could have an index of, um, you know, kind of uh, um, uh, opportunities for a subpopulation, right? Or equality or, or things like that. Uh, but that is, that is different from uh, an index of freedom. And I think it's important to call things by their proper name, right? Um, you know, access is one standard that we might judge a society on and freedom is another standard, but they are different things. And it's an important you know, as social scientists to disaggregate those things, even if we care, might care about both. Um, you know, and so I, I think, for example, like, um, uh, you know, something like the, the, the quality of, of a community is valuable, but that's, that's different from freedom, right? So the number of civic associations in a town is something that's probably really valuable to that town's flourishing, but it is something separate from freedom. So gentlemen, you've been doing a, a fantastic job of hitting some of the main questions as they come in. Uh, I'd like to all encourage all of you who are participating today to keep them coming in. We're going to turn to those pretty exclusively here in a second. But the last main question that I had for the time being involves thinking about the applicability of the report, particularly to this group of uh, participants as educators, right? So both of you come from an academic background. You've taught for many years in a wide variety of different settings. As educators, how do you recommend people take advantage of using a tool like this to help their students? What are some of the ways that you can think this could be and has been fruitful for you and other educators in the past? Yeah, I've um, I've I've used uh, a previous edition of this once in the classroom uh, to sort of stimulate a discussion about exactly what what freedom means, the kind of conversation we've been having. Uh, so looking at the policies that are included and in where states come down, um, you know, what do you think um, belongs in here? Are you surprised by any of the policies that we include? You know, what um, what really counts as a freedom, and what then what place should freedom have in our political philosophy? Right, is freedom? Uh, presumably, freedom is not the only political value. Right, there's good government, quality of life, things like that. Um, is it? But is it the most important or fundamental political value? Um, or is, does it have to share place with something like equality of outcome? And that's an interesting conversation that I think uh, students want to engage. And, uh, and you can use the study to sort of provoke that conversation. I think um, one, of the, uh, one of the people in chat mentioned uh, an interesting exercise, David Olson, I see, um, a statistical exercise where you could look at how uh, freedom correlates with other factors, and uh, and that could be an interesting sort of social studies exercise um, to see whether freedom is valuable to people. Will mentioned that um, that we find that uh, Americans are moving from less free to freer states, uh, and we found this in every edition of the index, no matter what time period we look at, no matter what variables we control for, we find. Uh, that relationship. We also find a relationship between economic freedom and economic growth. Um, so those are interesting things that we find, but there are all sorts of other, uh, other things you can look at. Um, so how does uh, freedom relate to, um, well, corruption would be an interesting one. There's, there are data out there on state level corruption. Um, and uh, we find some evidence that our, our um, one subset of our of our index is an index of cronyism, we call it, which has to do with uh, re basically restrictions on competition in the marketplace um, and, and pricing in the marketplace. And we find that that index does correlate uh, with, with corruption. Um, so states that are more cronyist are more corrupt and also have more lobbyists per legislator. Um, so some interesting relationships there. Doesn't tell us about causation, 
but those, those sorts of correlations can invite a conversation then about well, what causes what, um, you know, does this surprise you? You know, why would, why would this correlation exist? Absolutely. Will, any other tips that you would offer? Yeah, I mean, I, for one thing, if you're teaching statistics, you can use our, our I think, our, our index um, because we, have, we provide so much data and there's so many variables. And so even basic statistical concepts you could teach using this. Um, but I think that, that probably the number one thing is like Jason said, it's to kind of provoke a conversation about what freedom means. Um, and, you know, what, when it, again, we oftentimes talk in a highly kind of generalized sense, you know, the July 4th view of freedom, but it really is instantiated in particular policies, right? So should individuals be allowed to drink and purchase, to consume and purchase raw milk, or should the government restrict that? And even if they're doing it for a good reason, right? Uh, should they be able to? Uh, you know, are you less free? Now, again, you know, raw milk is not something that I consume. It's not something that, that really impacts my freedom that much. Um, um, but look, there's a whole range of policies like that. You know, uh, sports betting is an area, for example, that has become more free recently. It's one of the things that's really been uh, a big deal lately in the gaming area. And for a lot of people, that was a that was a part of their life. Right. I mean, that's one of the reasons why organized crime was in that business is because people wanted it and now it's been freed up. And so for for some people, that's really impacted their life. You know, you don't have to get into a situation anymore where it could be dangerous to your physical health. Uh, or your uh, ability to stay out of jail uh, to engage in sports betting on your local college football team, for example. Um, so it really does, freedom does hit you in lots of areas. And again, I invite people to look at the whole range of, of 100 plus variables we look at because, you know, it's really, it's exciting when we're doing the coding because we, A, we have to figure out what policies relate to freedom and how to weigh them. Uh, but it's interesting to find out what's happening in these places and to see some of the trends. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and the new policy areas like vaping became an issue, sports betting. These are things that weren't, weren't on our radar when we started uh, because they weren't policy issues where there was differences across the states, really. Um, and then you even have interesting outlier cases like a case like prostitution, which is legal in Nevada and for a split second became legal in Rhode Island. Uh, or was it just in Providence, yeah. Jason? I can't remember. It was Rhode Island. Uh, yeah, accent. Rhode Island as a whole. Um, <laughs> but those are issues, again, like, uh, and that kind of like turns me to another thing I wanted to kind of address here, which is that our definition of freedom and our coding of freedom, uh, we are not taking a moral stand on whether these are good things. In fact, there are a lot of ways in which one should be able to justly use your freedom that I think Jason and I would, would hope that you didn't. Uh, <laughs> you know, so... Uh, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm not a smoker. I don't like smoking. I don't like to be around it. Um, but I think people should be free to do that because I want to respect individuals' moral dignity as rational agents to decide how to best live their life. I don't want to tell them how to do that in terms of using the, the, the coercive force of the law. I would like to leave that up to moral suasion. I'd like to tell you why, if you're a smoker, that might not be consistent with your flourishing as a human being, particularly if you're doing it over the long run. I've been trying to convince my mother for decades not to smoke, but I don't want the government to get involved in that. Uh, I would like to do it on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Uh, and, and the same thing for lots of things. Like, I think it's disrespectful of women, uh, to, to be, to a, to, particularly women, because women are oftentimes, uh, but not always the time, uh, those engaging in prostitution. I would like to, to convince you not to use those services because I think it, it is not consistent with respecting the moral dignity of women. Uh, but but is, it a product, is it something that is related to freedom? And do states vary across that? Yes, they have, right? Nevada has a form of legalized prostitution. And again, that's a controversial issue. And there's a lot of controversial issues out there. That's why states vary on these things, right? They have different regimes for alcohol different regimes for gambling, different views of prostitution, different reviews of, of marijuana and drugs, right? And, and that's what kind of makes it exciting is we can see the change and we could debate it, right? We should debate whether people should be allowed to dispose of their, of their lives in this way or not. 
Yeah, so, another interesting feature of the study, just real quick, is that um, we do have the state profiles at the at the end of the print edition, and you can look up your own state, and, and it has a description of how the state has changed and, and how the state is different from other states, and that's also potentially pretty interesting for use in the classroom. I I love that last point, Jason. I think the uh, that that point and what Jason mentioned earlier about people often being surprised, right? So Texans being surprised about the relative state of their freedom in Texas is a fantastic point that is sort of universal. That is, as, as students grow up, they're part of a community that has a sense of what it means to be normal and normal is derived from where they are and what they've seen. But seeing that compared to other places is really interesting as a way of sparking conversations, right? So, uh, you know, whether that's the, the Texan believing one thing or, or another another about their state relative to these pieces, it can be a fantastic conversation uh, regardless of the subject area. So you guys have, like I said, been great about uh, tacking on, tackling the questions as they come in. I wanna hit a few of them uh, that either I think are worth expanding on that you already touched or, or a couple we didn't quite get to. Early on, Dave Olson asked a question that I wanted to, to quick throw by you guys. Uh, when you're thinking about uh, voting rights and voting restrictions, how does that fit into the free unfree categorization? Yeah, so, so voting laws relate to uh, a civil right, right? Um, it relates to how you are able to or not able to participate in the political process. We're trying to measure something different. It doesn't mean that we think that those things are uh, not important to people. They clearly are, um, but that is a separate social science category than say um, uh, economic freedom or personal freedom as, as we look at it. Um, and so our study doesn't really take into account uh, a lot of those those things that we admit are important. They're just not here. The other thing that we don't look at, for example, is we don't look at the efficiency of um, of freedom protection versus private um, uh, violations of rights of freedom, right? Um, so we're looking at how uh, public policies affect freedom. But we all know that if that freedom, is the right, like I said, is the ability to, to, to dispose of your life, liberty, and property as you fit, see fit, consistent with the equal rights of others. And that means if someone's going around your neighborhood stealing your property or punching you in the nose or engaging in, in uh, private on private violence like murder and arson, right? Um, those are things that, it, that, that it's very difficult for us to code in this type of study. Um, and so we try as best when it comes to like the crime adjusted incarceration rates, but we're not fully looking at the ways in which uh, uh, states are efficient at producing uh, freedom from uh, private aggression, right? We're looking at public policies. So jumping yeah. in another question, uh, Kevin Wagner asked something that I think is interesting and, and speaks to a few uh, few different things that you guys have pointed already about the relationship between trends that you see in states. He asked in particular about what types of correlations, if any, could be made in regard to population size of a state mm -hmm. relative to their freedom. That is, is that something where you see any sort of meaningful trends? Yeah, I, I will say I, I do think there is a, a slight uh, negative relationship between um, state population and freedom, uh, but it's hard to know what that is really capturing. Um, you know, and we try to, we've tried in, in various iterations of the data to um, to nail down factors um, that, that that might be driving this, and to understand whether there's something about state culture or state institutions um, that this is is capturing. We do think that, um, that there is a relationship between urbanization and lower personal freedom. So it does seem that states with a higher uh, percentage of the population living in urban areas, according to the Census Bureau, have lower levels of personal freedom. And so controlling for that, there doesn't seem to be much relationship between population size and freedom. Uh, so now what is that capturing <laughs> Why? Uh, why is uh, as personal freedom lower in, in more urbanized states? Some of it might have to do with um, just fear of crime, um, and and some of this we can find in just stricter drug laws and gun laws. You tend to find in in states that are more urban. So that's probably uh, a significant part of it. 
So wanted to dig into a couple of other things that have come up in the course of the conversation. Uh, earlier, we were talking about some of the, uh, well, you were talking in particular the second time around about this relationship between positive and negative freedoms and why some of the positive freedoms are challenging to think about for this kind of social, uh, social study. Uh, Jimmy Camp asked a question about that. He'd asked, uh, so would you claim that freedom exists without other constructs such as justice or equality? That is, thinking about some of these other particularly important ideas, how do they fit into the, the broader structure of thinking about freedom? Well, I don't think you can talk about justice without talking about freedom, right? Um, because justice is a political uh, concept, right? Now, you could talk about ethics or morality without talking about freedom, but I don't think justice. Um, you know, uh, like to me, an unjust society in which is one in which uh, you wouldn't allow, you know, um, uh, you know, consenting adults to engage in consensual, you know, behaviors, whether consensual acts of capitalism or consensual acts of you know, you, you, you name your kind of uh, personal freedom, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, guns, uh, uh, tobacco, uh, raw milk, um, you know, living without being surveilled and so on and so forth. So I think that, uh, that these other concepts, again, are, are, are potentially valuable. Uh, but like Jason said at the, at the opening, I don't think anybody who believes in those other values would say that negative freedom is unimportant to their concept of what it would mean to live in a flourishing uh, society. The other thing I would point out is that, that the correlation between something like economic freedom and economic growth, I think is important regardless of whether you uh, uh, have a strong kind of intrinsic sense of the importance of freedom. Um, because uh, even if you want to have a big social welfare state, you need economic growth because growth, is, e economic wealth is something that is created. It's not a fixed pie that we simply divide. And so, again, even if you believe in having a, a safety net or a large social welfare state, uh, you're going to be able to afford more of these things if you have a growing economy. And economic freedom is related to a growing economy. Um, so, for example, if you have a a heavy regulatory regime that's going to lower your your personal income growth. It means you're going to have, uh, you know, in, in people are going to have less resources. And I think a, a big example is something that came up in, on Twitter today. Uh, Megan McArdle of the Washington Post was talking about this, about like, look, we can live like Denmark, but we have to understand that if we live like Denmark, we're going to have smaller houses, we're going to have um, uh, less well-heated houses. We're going to have more expensive uh, movies, more expensive uh, groceries, all those things that, that aren't just like whether we have a McMansion or not, right? It's a whole range of things. And I think a lot of Americans are surprised when they even go to Europe and realize that the average person lives less well than the average person in the United States. I mean, if you live in Houston, for example, and you're a, 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 even a lower middle class person, you're living really well relative to people that are even middle class or upper middle class. In, in lots of European states that we think of as, you know, kind of uh, banners of, of, of progressivism, right? In, a, in, in, the, in the best sense of that term. Yeah, the other, the other thing I would say there in relation to equality and justice and freedom and the, the relationship among them is that um, free, negative freedom uh, is closely allied to the concept of justice in that, uh, as, as Will mentioned before, the law of equal freedom suggests that, um, that everyone's, everyone's negative freedom is consistent with everyone else's, right? So you can exercise your freedom without um, infringing on, on anyone else's. Um, so we all enjoy equal freedom in that sense. Um, now, there are, of course, other, other things that we can make equal, right? We could make people's wealth equal. Um, now, to make people's wealth equal, you'd have to make it so that freedoms were not equal, right? You'd have to take, take freedom from some and, and, and give to others, um, and so then the question is, um, you know, what should what should we make equal, right? And that's a, a core question, I think, in, in political philosophy. Jason, I had a, a follow-up question for you for one of the uh, pieces you talked about earlier. That is the the way that you've analyzed the data. Uh, 
Betty A. Jensen had asked, how do you decide the weightings assigned to the different freedoms? So I know you go into this in, in much greater detail in the report, but I wonder if you could walk us through a little bit of what it is that that looks like, how the, how the different weightings come about. Okay. Um, so um, we, what we do is we look at the, the scholarly research on each of these policies uh, and we look at the people whose freedoms are at stake. Um, so not to get too um, wonky about philosophy, but, uh, but this is not an index of utilitarianism or an index of utility. We're not looking at um, total social welfare here. Um, what we're looking at is the welfare of people whose freedoms are potentially being restricted or honored. And um, right, so, and, and the um, famous philosopher John Rawls uh, put it this way that um, uh, on, on his theory of justice, uh, you would not analyze slavery uh, on utilitarian terms. You would not say, well, slavery is wrong because the happiness the slave owners get is outweighed by the unhappiness of the slaves. In the same way, in a much less, you know, we're not talking about slavery here, but in a much less, um, uh, radical way, we are we are talking about uh, the the freedoms of those um, who, whose freedoms are potentially restricted. We're not talking about the the benefits of restricting freedom from those who want to see freedom restricted. So, for example, uh, limiting the ability of people to start new hospitals through cer certificate of need laws. Well, that benefits the incumbent hospitals. They say, well, that's great. People have fewer choice of hospitals. We can charge more for medical care. Um, there's less competition, but we're not going to, we don't wait, we don't include in the weights, the benefits that, uh, that incumbent hospitals get from restricting competition. We only include in the weights, the costs in terms of, um, those, uh, potential hospitals that, that would be formed, um, that, you know, the, the foregone revenue from that and the foregone consumer welfare, especially that we could get from lower healthcare costs and, and more um, availability of hospital beds that certificate of need laws prevent. Yeah, and that, and that gets into like the, in some ways, the positive and negative freedom, right? So if we restrict people's po uh, negative freedom to gamble as they see fit on, on sports, uh, we shouldn't have to take into account the, uh, the loss of legalized uh, sports of the loss due to legalized sports betting to the mafia uh, because they've lost business, right? Because uh, that's not a, that's not a, a, a their, their rents that they can extract are, are essentially not valid to a calculus of freedom. It might be valid to some kind of utilitarian calculus about kind of overall utility. Um, but that's, but again, not to get down a rabbit hole, but the problem with a lot of utilitarian calculus calculations of course is as jason said is you have to weigh everybody's utility and then the question is is how do you weight the people who could be who could get a ton of utility from other people's disutility right and that's a real challenge uh, of utilitarianism right so uh someone who just got a ton of glee from other people not being allowed to sports bet you, you know how, why should you weigh that into the calculus uh, as if as if that should matter to us, right? As as human beings, gentlemen, we we've covered a ton of different topics. I I want to do two quick things. First of all, I want to encourage all of our participants take a look at the report. Uh, so you can download it; it's widely available on the website, uh, freedominthe50states.org. Fantastic resource with a wonderful map that you can interact with and take a look, break down by states, and adjust on a whole variety of margins please do take a look at it there, share it widely. Uh, but the second thing that I want to do, I'd love to hear uh, from both Will and Jason, uh, what's one quick takeaway? What is one thing that you would share, whether in sort of the, the 15 plus years you've been looking at doing this report that you've learned about it, or something particular from this most recent iteration where you would say, if I had to leave you with one thing, here's the observation. Jason, you want to go first? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say if I if I had to leave you with one thing, it's that um, you know freedom is is what we make of it, and um, we're sort of inviting you to to think about what counts as freedom for you and and what place that has 
in a fuller account of justice in the good society. And so one of the things you can do is take our data, requires a little bit of Excel knowledge, but you can take our data and you can, uh, you can play around with it. Um, you can drop categories, you can drop policies. If you disagree with us, that shouldn't be in the index, or you can just change the weights um, based on, on how, you, how important you think these variables are, even just to you personally. So it could be sort of your personalized freedom index. Um, so that is part of freedom, is thinking about freedom and defining it for ourselves. Bill, any closing thoughts? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess um, what I think is really interesting about the study of economics and of political economy are what are called revealed preferences, right? Not what people say, because we say lots of stuff as human beings. I mean, we're social animals, right? And so we, we, you know, we fire off things, we say things on Twitter or on Facebook, but how we actually behave is, should be something that's very insightful about the things that we actually care about as opposed to the things we care about, um, because we're, we're voting with our actual behaviors. And that's why I think this, this issue of, of out-migration and in-migration is so fa fascinating, because what you have is a situation where, regardless of what people say, um, they are tending to vote with freedom being an important consideration, even if that's mediated by other things like cost of living or um, you know, kind of uh, business opportunities, right? Employment opportunities, it, it, is, it, it is having an effect. And that's why you're seeing a state like New York, which traditionally has been number 50 on every variable and now is like 50, 49 and 49 or something like that. Um, they've been losing population, not in terms of the overall amount, because you have lots of people coming from around the world and living in New York City, at least for a while, or New York State for a while. But of the, of the people who are there, the population that was there in, say, 2000 or 2010, you're seeing states like New York lose population, which is remarkable given the fact that New York uh, has a, 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 one of the world's most important cities, if not the world city in New York City that should attract people. There's so much to do there. There's so much energy. And yet the state is losing population to other states, particularly to, to uh, places like Florida, but also neighboring states. That to me is a signal that New York is doing something wrong uh, because people are actually voting with their revealed preferences, showing their revealed preferences, not just saying like, oh yeah, New York's great, great state and it's important that we have X, Y, and Z and government has to do X, Y, and Z. Well, why is everybody leaving if it's so great, right? Um, and the same thing with California and Illinois, and you're seeing that, uh, or you're even seeing states like Indiana which admittedly the Midwest has done more poorly on population in migration uh, and out migration, uh, but a state like Indiana, for example, losing less citizens than neighboring states like, like uh, Illinois. That means that, that Indiana is doing something that's attracting people. And that's why you could also, if you think this is invalid, think about the world. Why, why aren't tons of Americans deciding to pick up and move to China, right? Why are lots of people, including lots of people from China, if they can get out, coming to America? Why? Because I think they value that package of freedoms that we have. Now, you could say, well, they're moving for the smoking regulations or the quality of life in California. A lot of places have great quality of life, but they're moving here. And that's a big part of that is because of our freedom as a country. That's also true at the state level. And I don't think we should ignore that. It's not as, as, as big a difference, right? There, the difference between New Hampshire and New York uh, is not the same as the difference between New York City and Burma, right? Um, but the fact is, is that there are differences. And, and again, as someone said, like New York City is expensive. Well, New York City is expensive for a lot of reasons. Uh, and one of those is actually because of the regulations. I mean, I'm going to throw a softball to Jason here because he's a housing specialist. But a big part of that is because housing is so expensive. And it's not just because lots of people want to live in New York City. It's also because of the policy regime they have there. So take it away. I put it on a T there for you, Jason, as a housing expert. Yeah, I, I don't know. We might be out of time. But in short, um, there is a lot of evidence that zoning regulations are, are causing housing shortages and, and uh, house prices and rents to go up around the country. But 
especially in places like California, New York, the Boston area. Um, so it's a big deal. Will, Jason, thank you both so much for joining us tonight. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thrilled to have you here talking about the new report. Again, I want to encourage all of you who are here tonight, read the report, dig into it, learn a little bit about what it says about your state and how you compare to others, and share the word. Pass it along to others in your community. We're going to do what we can to try and get copies of the report out to everyone. We'll at least make sure to send you all the link to get a chance to look at it. Thank you all so much for joining us tonight. It's been a fantastic conversation. And we're pleased, as always, to have you. Uh, keep, in, uh, keep in touch. We'll be launching our spring slate of programming for Sphere over the course of the next few weeks. Very exciting opportunities coming up, and we'll be in touch soon about all of those. Will, Jason, again, thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you, and thanks to everyone who came.